Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. I have a really special episode today. My father is here. We had a man named Jim reach out. He is the dad of a victim and she's living with him and also her three children. And he reached out and was like, how do I help my daughter? What do I do? He was like, could I talk to your dad? (laughs) So I thought, let's do a podcast episode about it and talk about some of these issues. So welcome, Jim. Thank you. And dad. I'm happy to be here. So, Jim, do you want to just start with what's going on with your daughter? Sure. She's been married about 10 years, uh, has three children. The youngest one is a year and a half, basically. So about the time that uh, she had the baby, she came to me with a little experience when the baby was about a week old. She was asking for some newborn photos or something, and, and her husband basically just come unglued on her to the point that she was like, shaking and like it was the turning point for her and she came to me and told me about that and my wife and i think it was a turning point for us in basically being able to tell her you know you do what you need to do we've got your back did you understand that as abuse at the time or did you just think he was being a jerk what did you think you know i'm not sure when the words came because certain things happened that helped give us vocabulary, if you will. I think that the the term that came to my daughter first was verbal abuse. And so she looked it up and started saying, wow, I'm getting a lot of that. At some point in there, you know, she, in hindsight, you know, she had been concerned about their marriage for at least a year before that. And in hindsight, you know, even much before that, but particularly enough that she wanted to do something. And she started asking him about it and toward the time of the baby, uh, they did some marriage counseling, which made things worse. And he suggested that at some point that she was suffering um, postpartum depression. So this would have been after that experience I described. And she was recommended a counselor and went to this counselor. And the counselor specialized in postpartum depression. And in the first session, she said, "Uh, you have no postpartum depression. I think you're being abused. And that helped confirm, and I can't remember the order of things. You know, obviously she told us her experience before that with the counselor, but a few things just started to lock together and give her an ability to 
describe what was happening. And, you know, in hindsight, it was there all along, even from the beginning of their marriage. Uh, when you're trying to support your kids in their marriage, you're not like looking for those sort of things. It's kind of a, a goodwill an attitude that, that you have towards it. And, and I must mention that, that he is very, very skilled at reading people and uh, manipulating them, basically, is what it turns out. But uh, it's quite quite personable and quite funny and all those things, you know. And that that was the big thing for me was, you know, how can somebody be so friendly and personable to everybody else and treat his wife so badly? Can you tell us about Sarah's personality? Like, is she kind of quiet? Is she assertive? She is, you know, overall fairly quiet. We contrast with some of her other siblings. She was always the the type that was um, interacted with friends, but not with adults so much. Whereas a lot of our siblings enjoyed adult conversation with adults. And so she was different that way, just a little less assertive. I guess in her mind, marrying somebody who was outgoing was supposedly going to be good for social things, but kind of turned out to be the opposite. The reason I ask that is because as my dad talks, um, my personality is very assertive, like extremely. And so many people, when I started talking about it, were like, well, you couldn't get abused because of your personality. You're going to confront everything. That was one of the things that was hard, I think, for my family to really like process that's helpful to know where she was coming from. When she initially said that, was it easy to wrap your head around? Were you like, oh, yes, like did light bulbs come off? Or was there a time or a moment where you're like, oh, I'm not sure if she's processing this correctly from your point of view? A little of both. I mean, I don't think I was surprised because I observed all along. But, you know, my initial reaction is was to try to fix things, you know, that's how my personality is. And so it's like, well, this great marriage book here, or this great marriage book here. And one in particular, Gottman's book, where he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I don't know if you're familiar with it, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. When we've discussed that with her, she's like, hmm, yeah, he does all of those. You know, I'm, I'm defensive, but he does all of them. Uh, and so it's like, it's kind of hard to to come to the uh, the terms at first that your daughter's marriage is going to fail, you know what I mean? It's, it feels like a big letdown, you know? And so mm -hmm. when you bounce it against the four horsemen kind of thing, and you're like, there's got to be some way out of this. And, but the more you, you look at it, the more you see that, you know, it just really isn't owning it very much. So not much chance of change. I'm very familiar with Gutman's book and, and one of the things that came to mind as you were talking to Jim was their observations they did in the lab and they could predict whether marriages were going to succeed or fail based on the instances of those four horsemen issues coming up in the daily lives and conversation of the couple. Uh, that was a big aha moment um, as I was reading through that material. The interesting thing about Gottman is that he doesn't use the word abuse. He says criticism, stonewalling and stuff, but it, he doesn't say this is psychological abuse, which it could or could not be. It depends. Um, like a victim, for example, she might be trying to protect herself. And so she decides 
that she's going to just stop talking, which could be quote unquote stonewalling, but she's doing it to protect herself. Whereas an abuser with an abusive character is going to stonewall in order to control. And so because the goal is different, it's not necessarily abuse. I think that's interesting. And people have a hard time like knowing the nuances of victim and perpetrator relationships. Yeah. The, the, the words are important because abuse word gets people's attention. In fact, when she left, it wasn't, her idea wasn't that she was going to leave. She was asking him to leave for a while to, you know, do a separation. And she basically used the word, you know, emotionally abusing, you know. Well, that word sets people off <laughs> if they don't like uh, being accused of that. And, you know, within a day, it changed his mind from thinking he might leave to, no, I ain't going anywhere. And he never left the house. Mind vacillated between, I'm leaving, I hate it here, you're terrible to me, and I'm not going anywhere. And that was really interesting. Really quickly, before we go farther, did you know or were you aware of any pornography use? No, and that that's the puzzling thing, because, you know, he's adamantly denied that. If he's used it, he's been able to keep it very secret. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, there are telltale signs of you know, lots of time on the computer, et cetera, et cetera. But no, no admission and no, no real evidence. But highly likely in this case. Highly likely. Yeah. So, so how, how did he eventually leave the house or is he still in the house? He's still in the house. Is the divorce final? No. Yeah, after a year, we finally got to some temporary orders that were basically negotiated outside the judges' chambers. I think because both attorneys were afraid to go in there. I don't know. That's what it felt like. Unfortunately, the court system, with the amount of time that it takes to do things and everything, it does not protect victims per se and actually makes it a lot more difficult for victims. So I'm really sorry that that's happening. So he's still in the home and your daughter lives with you. And what's the custody arrangement? The temporary is 50-50 right now. Because the attorney was convinced that that's what the commissioner was going to give no matter what, so. Did your daughter work before this? Uh, Part-time. Okay. And what is the soon-to-be ex's financial situation? Does he make really good money? Is he the average person? What's his? Um, just a little above average, I would say. All right. Okay. So thank you for sharing that. Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. Let's talk about whatever you want now. Do you have questions, Jim? Do you? I mean, in some ways, you know, thinking about this this morning, I, I was thinking, you know, you've done a lot of these podcasts and, and I'm thinking that a lot of your listeners might like to hear uh, you and your dad talk a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so if I could throw out some questions that, that might, uh, that might help with that. I know for, I think I listened to at least one of yours where you told the story about a think it was a protective order or something that happened such that it created a space where you figured this all out. And then I guess the question is, you know, how did you approach your family about it? And 
how did that go over, I guess is the question. Well, I have the privilege, I guess, of a very awesome family. My parents are amazing. They're really involved, but not annoyingly involved and also not overly involved. And so they were always here at just the right moments and really helpful. So do you want to tell the story from your perspective of the day that he punched the wall in the therapy appointment? Yeah, that, that'd be a, a good place to start, maybe. So my ex and I were in a therapy appointment, uh, like a couple therapy appointment. It was online. And both of my parents were here to tend the kids. And they were upstairs and we were downstairs. And during the therapy appointment, he started pounding on the desk and like yelling in my face and spitting. And he broke the door and he put two holes in the wall in during this therapy appointment. And the therapist was like, get out of there right now. So he was the first one. And this is like seven years of therapy later that mentioned the word abuse. And I went upstairs and I, I told my parents because they were there. And I'm also talking to the therapist on the phone because I get out of there. I go upstairs and I'm talking to the therapist on the phone. I tell my parents and then basically he left, right? That Well, he didn't leave the house. But no, he, he was still downstairs. Well, he, oh, he was still downstairs. Okay. So, yeah. Why don't you pick it up from there, dad? Like, well, we, tell he- your we heard the noises, the doors being broken and the walls, you know, so we knew something was bad was going on. And then Anne came upstairs and <laughs> and I went right downstairs and because I wanted to talk to him and find out what was going on and had a pretty good relationship with him. I could, I could talk with him and, and we talked for 45 minutes and basically, you know, do you want a divorce? Uh, what will happen if you get divorced? Uh, what will the financial arrangements be? I mean, I was just asking him questions and he was responding and then making comments of his own in terms of where where they thought they were at but it was clear to me through that conversation that he did not want to remain married but he couldn't figure out a acceptable and financially feasible way to get out of the marriage and there was nothing definitive that happened out of that conversation remember when you said something about the police and he was like oh i i I know how to deal with them or whatever yeah well i I said you, you know the police could come over right now and arrest you for abuse from what's what has transpired here today. And he says, Oh, I'm not worried about that, but I can talk my way out of that. And, and he said some other things about uh, divorce and money. But so that kind of laid it bare between the two of us of knowing where he was at and what was, what, what was going on in his head. And it was only a month after that, that he, he, the incident happened that, uh, he actually got arrested. He got arrested because of some physical abuse that happened in the house. So. so from your perspective, Dad, at that moment where you're like, my daughter is married to someone who does not care about her. Like, he wants to get divorced, but he can't figure it out. Like, what were you thinking in your head? Okay. I'm going to admit where I think I went wrong and where my thinking was wrong at that point in time. And you Jim, you mentioned something I think that was critical to that in terms of you telling your daughter that she needed to do do what she needed to do and you had her back. I think I was deficient in that area. I was still of the mode of, you know, what will correct this and it takes two to tangle. And, you know, I didn't understand the nature of abuse. I hadn't read some of the 
really important uh, materials that I needed to read to understand that. So I was still more equivocal of this or that, and I was not as uh, unconditionally supportive as I should have been at that moment and at that time. And that's one of the big issues that I would like to communicate to all the listeners in terms of family support is to, uh, my observation is in abuse, the tendency to say there's two sides of this goes out the window. And the abuse victim needs unconditional support from those close to her, in particular her parents and her siblings and other family members. And uh, again, from reading and observation, I think that's one of the things that's, that really is damaging and that's lacking in, in these abuse cases. You know, that moment when I told her I had her back was after, you know, after I finally woke up because, you know, there were a lot of signs along the way. In fact, I'd been sent up there a few weeks before to talk to him and ask him to leave, you know. I was unsuccessful, but because he's a good talker. And to be honest, we had a great talking relationship because I guess I like to talk and he liked to talk and and we had common interests. Although my daughter makes it clear now that, you know, sometimes she thinks some of the interests are fake interests, you know, just to <laughs> kind of, I don't know, groom the parents a little bit too. Um, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, but. Uh, that was going on in our case as well. And, and maybe I am being too hard on myself, but I don't think so. I, I was too willing to hear and listen to him and it damaged my relationship with my daughter and it it was damaging to her and and that's what i have seen in retrospect what well, i think one of the things that like hurt me during that time was that like i'm not perfect right like to have obviously my abuser using my weaknesses against me and weaponizing those. And then also my strengths he was exploiting and weaponizing those as well. And then sort of being able to word it in a way that my dad knowing me so well was kind of like, well, I can kind of see your point of view, right? Because Anne is really opinionated and she is very direct and she's very, you know, whatever. And so because of that, instead of being like, that's not the issue, the issue is your abuse and sort of having a little bit of empathy, would you say toward him or some, yeah, yeah, that, that was hurtful to me because there's a lot of women who are maybe quiet like Sarah is, or maybe assertive like I am, but they're not getting abused. So that doesn't really have anything to do with it. No. But this is a broader issue than just a parent. I think a bishop or a pastor, a minister, a therapist, um, anyone that's in that kind of a role uh, interacting with an abused victim is going to have these kind of tendencies that, that I had that, that I recognized afterwards as being uh, hurtful and detrimental to my daughter. Also, just flat out not true. So, for example, he could say, well, if she would just do this and that. And, and it, those weaknesses in her may be true, but it's not true that if she were different, he would stop abusing her. That's that's where it's that's just not true. That's understand. Yeah. I think that, that hits it exactly right. Because I, I will say one thing uh, about Sarah. As in our family, she's the one that 
probably the best at self-care. I'll just say that. And that annoys siblings sometimes. And those are the kind of things that he would, in fact, I think he would, particularly around her family, bring those kind of things up, you know? And weaponize them. Like, yeah, I'm guessing she's not selfish per se. She's good at self-care, but. Yeah, if everybody took care of themselves as good as she did, the world would be a better place, you know? Right, but taking it (laughs) farther by attacking her character with that strength and saying she's selfish, she doesn't, you know, things like that. Like, taking it farther than it needs to go to attack her character, which I'm not saying that he did that because I'm not aware of that, but that's the type of thing that an abuser would do. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Those are some of the things that were going on in my mind during that time. I'd had a prior interaction with... uh, John. Well, we're going to call my ex John, yeah. Pornography abuse and some other issues that had gone on uh, years before. I was really direct, but I was also empathetic and trying to be understanding. I wasn't trying to be an ogre and beat him over the head, but I I did beat him over the head in in as nice a way as I could. So uh, we had that history as well uh, coming into this, but I I did not understand the nature of abuse and the the continuum of of abuse. And I didn't understand uh, the damaging nature of uh, my lack of unequivocal support for my daughter. One of the things that was interesting, Jim, is the night so he was arrested at night for domestic violence. And I, my parent, I called my parents. They were really helpful that night. But the next morning, was it that night or the next morning that you were like, well, should I go bail him out? And mom was like, no. Do you remember that? Because <laughs> yes. he was like, what do we do? You know, because did you kind of feel like he was your responsibility yeah. sort of? Well, yeah. And his family. I mean, yeah. again, the, the, the detachment of, being family, and you you re- reference this, Jim, as to accept defeat and to recognize, uh, the, you know, the situation you're in. And I was still in the, this this can be re- reconstructed, and you know, what can I do to help? And uh, I didn't realize that it had it had passed beyond that that point. But I I do think there's that pivotal transitional point where, and Jim, you alluded to it as you you don't want to be a nitpicker and actually damage their marriage when it's salvageable. Um, so when do you when do you recognize you need to make this pivot and change uh, the way you're viewing it and the way you're seeing it and the way you react to it? And I, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, that, that's, that's a tough one, but I, I think the transition needs to be made and uh, maybe it needs to be made more intentional and more conspicuous. I I don't know. We're going to pause the conversation here and continue the conversation with my dad and Jim next week. So stay tuned. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon, and Rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on Support the BTR Podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.